I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Groundbreakers, history makers. Welcome to <laughs> the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am your host, Emma Race, and it thrills me greatly to be back in the studio with my football-loving, leather-kicking lady friend sisters. <laughs> I'm going to let you introduce yourselves. I'm Lucy Other Race. I'm Nicole Hayes, and wow, she's back. <laughs> and I'm Corbin Middlemass. <laughs> Corbin Middlemass, the mid-season draft has delivered unto us a new sanctum. How are you, Corbin? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Um, I do listen to the show uh, regularly, so it's uh, it's nice to be part of it. Well, we are so pleased that you are here. Um, for people playing along at home, Corbin Middlemass is one of the ABC Grandstand team, and you would know his name because we quote him all the time because he is a font of all knowledge about football and other things. And we're going to dig into a conversation with you about your experiences. We're so pleased that you're here to melee with us today. We are down a couple of our regulars. You will be hearing from Felicity in one way or another throughout the show. We've got a surprise for you today. And Alicia is out with general soreness, I think. General soreness, yeah. yeah. And two, Kate's here. Two weeks in a row. And Kate's here is off to deliver her Alice Tay lecture, which is such a huge honour. And we just wish her all the very best of luck. It is about sport. You'll be pleased to know. And I'm really hoping that she'll publish it at some mm. point because it's really interesting. A lot of the work that she's been doing in here about Casta Semenya will be getting a mention tonight on the big stage. So we wish her all the very best of luck with that, but we will miss her. So we just came out of the Sir Doug Nichols round and one of the biggest highlights for me was seeing Sydney Stack leading the Richmond war dance. Lucy, you were there. What was it like? Oh, it was beautiful. It it was such a shame actually that the weather was so bad, especially at the start of that game. And so a lot of the pre-match entertainment didn't go ahead, but it was wonderful to see both Essendon and Richmond have some traditional war dancers before the game and Sydney Stack, we had a little clue that he might be doing something (laughs) because Daniel Rioli had mentioned that in our interview the week before, but nothing can really describe what it was like to just see him really inhabit that part of his culture and be so proud to show it and go take to the field and play a great game. Yeah, just like incorporating it into the game in such an integral way. It was Mm. amazing. And some of those photos you saw floating around on the social social media network. What I thought was interesting was... Social media network. Social (laughs) media. Info highway. In that interweb space. Um, Yeah. 
I'm learning my way around there. But I thought it was really interesting because Hardwick had said that a couple of years ago, even just two or three years ago, if a player had asked to be part of that, he would have said no because it was too much of a distraction. And and now that, you know, just the attitude towards how much culture, your own culture is part of who you are as a person and how you play the game. And that it's really just sort of broken down those defined lines about what's acceptable behaviour. I think it's fantastic. It is. Corbin, what did you think? Yeah, he's, I was lucky enough to be doing the game and... I was a bit like Lucy. I, it was the first time that I'd I'd actually been to Dreamtime at the G, and I was so disappointed with the weather and the fact that so much of it was um, was cancelled as a result of that. Uh, and they didn't do the usual blackout that they mm. they do for the game. And I've, I've obviously seen the pictures previously on on television. But to have Sydney take part in that will go down as one of the arresting images of of the year. He's probably the best feel good. Um, story in footy at mm. the moment. And this is a kid from you know, School of Hard Knocks, wasn't going to make it, left out of you know, a number of underage teams due to behavioural mm. issues. And yet to show that there is still a place for guys like that in the game nowadays. And I know a lot of people have long-standing prejudices against Richmond and their fans <laughs> and everything else. But if you were sort of a Martian and just sort of landed on the planet today and you were looking at all the 18 teams in the competition, how good is the current version of the Richmond Football Club? Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the culture that exists in that group, Sean Gregg being carried off in his suit a couple of weeks ago on the the way that the camaraderie that they have at the moment inside that group, there's something special at that mm. footy club and, and what Damien Hardwick's been able to create there. There was such a great piece um, that John Ralph wrote this week about Sydney Stack and it really talks through a lot of the history and one of the things it talks about is him turning up as a 16-year-old to have a um, meeting with Brenton Sanderson and he turned up with his lunch, which was some takeaway chicken and he took that into the meeting and it sounded like doing that indicated that he might not have been fully professional and the reason he did it is because he'd been working as a concreter. He had yeah. travelled an hour across town to get there. He was hungry. And it reminded me of, I don't know if you've read, this is a bit of a tangent, but if you've read 100 Years of Dirt by Rick Morton, and he talks about having the opportunity for a vice-chancellor scholarship. So he found himself amongst a whole group of people who understood what to wear for smart casual or you know, how to use chopsticks and people were all put through sort of the hoops of all of the social things that go alongside that scholarship. They had all of the experiences to inform them and he didn't. And it really reminded me that we need to be very mindful of what experiences people have had and barriers, I guess, to, um, you know, and some of those things that aren't, they're not to do with your on-field, how you can perform on-field, but they do have an impact. I thought um, one of the highlights as well on the weekend was the Frio Lions game. There was so much riding on it. The Lions, should they have won, were almost riding a certain ticket to be playing in the finals. And that Michael Walters goal after the siren, you couldn't have scripted it better. It just sounded like Perth Stadium would have just been on fire. What would that have done over there in Frio? They have an amazing record, Frio, of uh, games after the siren when you look back through their history. And, and I was thinking there were so many of them that more often than not, Fremantle are on the right side of things. Obviously, David Mundy with his kick after the siren against Richmond in recent times. Jeff Farmer against his old team, if you remember Jeff back Farmer. then. There was, I remember a game when I was about six or seven, a Quentin Leach, who was a sort of a little-known sort of forward, played for Fremantle, kicked a goal after the siren to beat Brisbane. Justin Longmuir took that big pack mark against St Kilda, went back, kicked the goal. So they've had all these random events um, after the siren, and more often than not, I think Fremantle are on the right side of it. Hayden Ballantyne missed one in the derby, hit the, hit the post. That's uh, just karma. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so apart from that, I think more often than not, when Frio have a kick after the siren, it seems to go their way. There's such a 
passionate fan base, the Dockers. It's They like to view themselves as um, the sort of blue-collar working-class team and West Coast as sort of the, the white-collar um, Chardonnay uh, sippers. But <laughs> I'm not so sure that those dynamics <laughs> exist nowadays, yeah. that, given there's a whole wave of kids and a generation that's come through that they've existed as long as Fremantle have been around. I think the origins of that come from the fact that a lot of people didn't jump on board with the Eagles when they first started in Western Australia because it was seen as killing the WAFL, that this was our competition and we're selling out to prop up the VFL and make sure that competition stays strong and uh, and be part of the, what was a sort of a pseudo-national competition was really still a Victorian competition when uh, the Eagles joined. And so as a result, a lot of people sort of stuck fat with their WAFL team. And then when the Dockers came in, it was like, well, clearly this is a national competition. We're heading in this direction. We weren't on board with the Eagles, but we're Fremantle people. So as a result, let's barrack for, um, let's barrack for the Dockers. So. Who did you grow up supporting? I'm an Essendon fan, but okay. I'm from a Fremantle household. I wasn't strong enough to break for Fremantle, so I sort of <laughs> diverted away. I was actually a big James Heard fan as a kid, so he won the Brownlow in 96, and I always tell the story how sort of he had the stitches on his eye and stuff, so that part of it sort of always appealed to me in 96 when he won the Brownlow, and so I'd run around in the backyard and pretend I was James Heard and... The team was so good from 99 and 2000, obviously winning the flag. Um, and I was eight or nine at that point and Fremantle were pretty ordinary. So there was no going back from uh, from that point. But yeah, from a Fremantle family, mum and dad are, are still Fremantle members today. So what's it like growing up in WA but supporting a Victorian team? Yeah. Like, was that a challenge for you? Yeah, it's hard work. So, the, <laughs> But I, I've, I always joke that I probably have a bit of a protest personality anyway, but I don't <laughs> mind sort of being the, the contrarian football supporter. I always explain to people how... Um, they ask me, oh, are you more Fremantle or West Coast? And I always say to them, well, I think your sporting rivals are always who your mates barrack for, that if your friends barrack for that team, if they their team beats yours, you're going to cop mm. it and vice versa. So as a result, I actually found that my two biggest sporting rivals were generally Fremantle and West Coast, that when they came to town, or when Essendon came to town and played them or their teams came over to, to Melbourne, there was always more at stake in the schoolyard in those games than there was even in Essendon Carlton, Essendon Collingwood. So I probably disliked them both evenly for a long period of time, <laughs> the, the two WA teams. So what's it been like? You started being a commentator in WA and there's a certain type of bubble, like it's we have a bubble here in Victoria as well. How do they compare? It's a good question. So, do they have their own unique personalities, these bubbles? Yeah, absolutely. For, Perth's a very small place. I feel like Perth is very much an order of the universe and you sort of can't sort of rock the boat and nobody challenges sort of the person higher up the line. The whole dynamic with the West Coast Eagles... I will never, ever get my head around as to how the Eagles run the town over there. Their chief executive was the same guy who oversaw one of the biggest drug scandals in the game and he's still in the job some 20 years on. <laughs> Just would never, ever happen in, in Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least that's what I like to think anyway. But it's it, that part of... It's just staggering for me and that a lot of the, the media there seem sort of very subservient to West Coast and that it's this fear that if we have the Eagles offside, we're an outsider. And yet then they take their lead to sort of say, oh, well, I'll show uh, how much of a hard-hitting journalist I am by criticising the Dockers. So I think like Fremantle feel like they are the, the whipping boys in town and that they're always playing second fiddle to, to West Coast who are a bit of a, uh, a protected species. What do you think it's going to be like in WA having two women's teams in the AFLW? It'll be good. I think Fremantle they probably took a couple of missteps at the start of their team and I think that's been well acknowledged now and I think we're seeing a change in the Dockers. Um, Peter Bell, who was formerly with the ABC, was a breakfast host in Perth, is, is now stepped in as the footy manager off the board uh, and he's 
pretty hands-on across the board. Went to every uh, AFLW game this year, home and away. So he's there across both programs and, and trying to make sure that things are blending together a lot better than they did initially where they were almost siloed and we had the women's team over here and the men's team on the other side. So West Coast, uh, for everything I say about the Eagles, they are a, a big, powerful, great club. And I think that with their brand and their team will come in and, and probably force Fremantle to, to lift their game a little bit too. We saw what the Dockers did last year at their most successful year yet. Um, Trent Cooper, their new coach, is, seems like he's the, the right guy for the job and has got them all pointing in the same direction. So we're very lucky in WA that we have a lot of women's talent compared to, I guess, some of the other states. So that's been strong for a period of time. And I think that was shown in the very first AFLW draft that when we had the marquee players. There was a limit, wasn't there, on how many yeah. West Australian players you could and have. There was, I think it was something like eight of the top 20 were West Australians mm-hmm. that made their way over to, to be marquee players at different clubs. And um, so it wasn't as if they were able to stockpile all that talent um, across the two teams. But perhaps now that there's um, there's a few more marquee spots, obviously with another team coming in, they'll be able to bring a few of those girls home. We talk about the women's footy's been one of the really big changes. Um, and certainly I think for us as outsiders, it, it's felt like there's been significant changes in the last few years. I look into the commentary boxes and I'm not sure it feels like that's quite reflected there. Generally, football attitudes or cultural yeah. attitudes around football, so gen- issues of gender and yeah. that sort of a thing. What well, do you see? I, I probably don't have a, a greater appreciation for that, given that every Saturday night I work with Lauren Arnell. So, um, yeah, sort of every every week I go to the footy, I hang out with Loz, and she teaches me a lot about the game. So um, as I'm very lucky to sort of sit in that box. And she's, she works with Brennan Goddard every Saturday night for us, which is, which is great, and two um, contrasting personalities. And so they have a a good dynamic amongst the two of them. So I, I guess at the ABC, I'd like to think that we we do have a lot of strong sort of female voices in the game uh, and particularly working with us. Kelly Underwood is obviously yeah. a broadcaster who, who works for our network and I see her quite regularly as well. I probably feel like you certainly see a lot more women in the press centre than what we would have... Ooh, five, even five years ago, five, six years ago. I know a lot of the other networks are using AFLW players as well to be special commentators and to, to come in and, and offer their insights in the game. So although we probably still have a, a way to go, the, the thing that always grabs me about AFLW is I know that there's a lot of things that need to change about it, but I can't believe it's been, only been going three years. It feels <laughs> like I can't remember when we didn't have it. Like yeah. it just seems like such a staple on the calendar now. Some of the players are, are already household names in, in footy families and you sort of think, boy, we've come up. And I know we, we're playing catch up, but... We've, we've come a long way in a very short period of time too. One way that we have also come a really long way in a really short period of time was August last year. You wrote an article coming out and saying, I am a football commentator and I am also a gay man. In the footy landscape, that's pretty rare. Everyone's choice is their own and no one has to out themselves. But you chose to do that. Why did you choose to do it? Um, I think ever since I came into the media industry, I mean, clearly I always knew I was gay and I thought this is something I'm going to have to speak about at some stage. And I I probably thought, and the ABC is very very gay friendly, um, probably more compared to a lot of other organisations. And I thought, I'd, I don't want people to think that this is a guy who's only doing it and only getting a leg up because he's gay. And so they're pushing him for that reason. So I thought I'd just, I want to try and establish myself a little bit in the industry and be able to work in the game for some period of time and prove that I can do the job and then hopefully use whatever sort of minimal platform I have to be able to to try and portray my message. And hopefully it has more cut through than say, had I've done it at 19 when I first walked in the door. Then when I was 23, I moved to Brisbane, had one year there, then spent two years in Sydney and then moved to Melbourne. So I was kind of like, I didn't, I felt like everywhere I went that was different. I didn't want it to be the first thing that that someone knew about me along the way. So it it was probably something that was building for a while and I, I knew that I always wanted to do it, mainly because I felt that as a kid, if it would have meant a lot to my self-esteem had I seen someone like me in the industry. And clearly we don't have any openly gay players in the league, but 
I probably just felt like it was it was time. I think a lot of my close friends knew by that point. I was sort of living these these two lives in a way where you'd sort of be hanging out with your mates and you'd be having a joke, and then you'd be like, "Oh, hang on, there's one person here who doesn't know." And it's it's just that that probably went on for about two years after I, I first sort of came out to my um to my best friend. So I, I feel like I've, I've been incredibly blessed in a lot of ways that I, I work in this really cool job. I get to go and call the footy every week. I have the best group of mates I think that anyone could ever ask for. I have a very loving and supporting family. And I kind of think like, well, it, I almost felt a sense of obligation to do it, that it was like, well, you've got all these things in your life. Like, what's the, why are you not doing it? Like, it's 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 almost like the only reason I felt like I wasn't doing it was because I didn't want, yeah, what, to to get the odd mean tweet or something like that. And I thought that's not a good enough reason for um, for hopefully what sort of impact it could have back the other way and, and help someone out that, that might be in a similar position. I think the other thing which I mentioned in the article was the, I think the most alarming thing, it's probably more a crossover with the mental health aspect as to why I did it. Like, the, the suicide rates for, for young gay people is astronomically high and uh, I think that's where almost when there's an encouragement for sort of people in the public eye to, to come forward and to, to tell their story a little bit is just to break down a bit of that because it's it's all a knock-on effect and uh, and if if that's the thing that we're doing it for then yeah we, we can't do enough I think to to try and discourage people from um, uh, from that horrible fate. One of the biggest stories that we've seen unfolding this year has been the story about Israel Folau the response by Rugby Australia has certainly been quite different to responses that we may have seen in the past. What's your take been on that story? Very difficult one. I wasn't as strong on this, I think. I didn't really know how to take it. I think I'm, on, I'm not a religious guy, so that's the first thing. But I feel like the whole country in a way is, is built on fake religious beliefs that it's sort of everyone's against divorce until you have to get a divorce and then everyone's pro-divorce. And yeah, and that sort of seems like the the way across a lot of things. I'm surprised that uh, I think for a lot of Australians, there's a huge separation now between sort of church and state. And yet it, it seems like the higher up the chain you go, that that's not there. Um, I think in Izzy's case that uh, I don't know the ins and outs of his contract, but it was clearly explained to him that, look, we're trying to portray this image and we're trying to be inclusive. And by you doing that, you're ostracizing a whole group of people so he is free to say whatever he wants but as he's not free from the consequences and as a result Rugby Australia surely at some point have the right to say that look we're paying you all this money if you want to go and be a, a sole trader or an independent contractor and, and push that message good luck to you but as long as you're playing under our mm. brand we're rolling with this image and, and if that's not for you that's that's cool go and do your thing. You mentioned in the article from last year's article that a retired footballer had said to you you yeah. know in the locker room anyone who's, who's gay would probably be quite comfortable coming out but it's the yep. circus outside. My initial thought was you mean the fans, but do you mean the commentary? Because I wonder. I think yeah. the fans and the players are way ahead of the commentary box where this is concerned, where the media commentators become fixated on these things. This, I mean, the locker room is a highly sexualised place. And what I mean by that is those young group of men, they're speaking about sex and and talking about what they're up to way more than any other group of Australian life. Like that, they know what everybody else is up to. So I don't doubt that there are footballers out there now and they know they're sharing the locker room with other gay players and it's not a big deal to them. I actually spoke to someone heavily involved in, in Clubland a couple of nights ago and I was having a beer with him and he was saying about how different the generation is and how a lot of kids coming through nowadays, are, there's this sense of entitlement with them. And then he backed over that when we ended up speaking about gay players in the league and homosexuality in, in sport. And he said, look, although I said that about players being entitled, one thing they are is they're incredibly accepting. They don't care about what everyone else is up to. And that's the, the great thing about the generation and probably every generation that comes through younger than me, that it's it's less and less of a 
a big deal. No, I agree with that. And I think for the, like you said, for the fans and for everyday people, everybody works with somebody who's gay or works for somebody who's gay or has a relative who's gay or their boss is or it's not a big deal. Like a footballer coming forward, it's not that big a deal for people. I think that um, we sort of get so caught up in our own industry that it's almost like it's little, it's its own little microcosm. But I don't think the rest of the the rest of society could could really care. It's interesting thinking about the media like its own little microcosm. And, you know, we've been seeing so many stories of like that real tension between the media and the commentators and either players or coaches. And this week we've seen David King and Brad Scott. There's been Kane Corns and Patrick Dangerfield, Damien Barrett and Luke Beveridge. And all of these stories are taking on their own kind of momentum as well. There was a really interesting piece that Lockie Neal wrote for the AFL Players Association about his experience with the media when he was moving from Fremantle to Brisbane. And he felt like he'd kind of been pushed to say something. And then the story went with a headline, you know, that basically made it sound like he was chasing a flag at Brisbane. And then he copped the social media. So then that kind of dovetails into the pressures that players have, and I guess potentially into their mental health. Have we got to a point where we maybe just talk about football too much? <laughs> like it's yeah. it says the football. Podcast. I know it says the yeah. football podcast, but and this is the irony. Like, where do we go with this? Yeah, I'm probably the other way, and I'm I'm a huge American sports fan, so I feel the news cycle doesn't move quick enough. It's sort of we get dragged down on the same issues, and I think if you watch the football shows on a Monday night on television, and then you watch the shows on Thursday night. They're speaking about the same issues. They're just asking different people their opinions on the same things. Mm. In the States, for example, if say we apply the same thing to the the NBA, where there's 82 games a year and the players are available all the time. So every time you go to practice, every player's available. You can walk up to him in the locker room, ask a question. Dane Rampey climbs the goalpost. Mm. He's available for to speak to the media the next day and then he's available on Sunday. We've heard from Dane everything he's got to say about it. The AFL comes forward, has a very clear statement. The issue moves on and that's finished with. It's Instead, we have this long, drawn-out process where I will send an email to the club, we'll sanction him, we'll give him a suspended fine, he can reply, it comes back, and it sort of drags out day after day after day. Uh, I think that wasn't even settled till Thursday or something after it happened the previous Friday. So I'd like to see the AFL Players Association and that... The guys nowadays, uh, a lot of their influences come from American sport. I think they're more than capable in front of the microphone, and yet it's the clubs uh, and more so the Players Association that are putting such restrictions, I think, on these guys. Just let them speak. Give them – make the availability – if you give more – more media, more availability to more players, there'll be more stories. So instead of if every player at the club's available to talk to, you have the Herald Sun journalists, say, going to one player, the age going to a different player, and everyone's speaking about different things and telling great stories like Sydney Stack, as opposed to saying you've got Jamie McMillan today, and he's and North's a bad example because they're probably the best media-wise, but say a player comes and speaks and he answers a series of mundane questions and then the same quotes appear in these little, little articles and they everyone sort of and every editor goes Look, that's not interesting enough let's talk about this let's yeah. talk about the guy climbing the goalposts let's talk about Kane Corns's comments about someone well that was actually yeah. my point I was going to make is that what's interesting is we have and I'm using a phrase that has been actually used by someone who's a commentator, a current former player (laughs) who is a commentator, that then what happens is the onus of the story kind of goes to the current former players who are all of a very similar generation and they're all of a very similar um, cultural background. background, And the story becomes them. The story becomes what their take is Mm. rather than actually speaking to the players because you're right, the players are kind of all locked away back in the cuckoo clock until they pop out again for games. 
game time, you know. And, and if I said to you right now, name me 10 players you want to hear from right now, you could easily come up with a list. You could be like, mm-hmm. oh, well, he's quite engaged and I'd be interested to see what he's got to say about that and what happens here. And every time you hear Patrick Dangerfield speak, he's got something to say about the broader football debate. So let's hear from him. Like it's yeah. sort of let's hear from Nat Fife and from Tex Walker and, and these guys each week. If they were constantly part of the conversation, they would be the ones actually driving it. And it actually works to the player's advantage because they get a chance to speak on these issues. But for someone like Lockie Neal, he might – so he writes his piece and talks about his relationship with the media and yet I haven't in his entire time at Fremel didn't hear Lockie do too much more than whatever he was required to do. So mm-hmm. he would be doing his odd media commitment, say, once every four weeks where you kind of think, get these guys out there more mm-hmm. because when they have stuff to say, I guarantee as the media, we would rather talk about them than talk about somebody else's comments on yeah. uh, on the topic. You see that with Players Voice, you know, when they mm. actually get an opportunity to platform, how interesting and compelling their narratives are and they get to control yeah. it, as you say. But it does come down a lot of the time to commentators needing to distinguish themselves somehow and so they have to make a big statement about something and more and more I mean remember a few weeks ago there were all of this uh, I can't remember which commentator it was it probably doesn't matter because it became a conversation about how Sydney has to be considering trading Buddy Franklin like there was no rumor they weren't even pretending this came from any source this was just a guy literally saying oh this is what I would do and it became a conversation about what would happen next that was Tony Shaw's comments and he was as surprised as anyone that it became this huge <laughs> yeah. thing. It was like, man, that was just my opinion on yeah, what happened yeah. and all of a sudden it, it sort of spiralled into this this debate. I am interested in how you feel in the commentary box after writing that article and coming out like that because there are more women around, not as not necessarily when I go to work on a Sunday. There's not so many. It's really yep. just me. Sometimes I see Kelly Underwood. But as we said, the commentary boxes are full of very like type of people and I feel that those people they don't really think I truly believe that those current former players don't really think that I have much to add on the game I don't get a lot of respect you know coming my way from them yeah. like I don't feel that I do in the ABC commentary box and my team is very supportive of me but there is a vibe yeah. and it's a very macho vibe yeah do you feel that yeah in the sense that my personality type I'm I'd like to consider myself quite I feel like I am quite masculine. So I sort of, and I've met a lot and developed a lot of these relationships probably before I came out. And I've been able to meet some great people along the way. And even when I came out, I remember Mark McClure rang me sort of straight away and and he sort of texted me and then rang me later in the day and sort of wanted to congratulate me on my piece and that he'd read it. And um, so he was just one of a number of people that sort of came forward and um, and congratulated me on that. I was living in Sydney at the time and calling the NRL and... The NRL, <laughs> how do I say this in a nice way? But you can say it however you want. So they're about 20 years behind us, I think. Going to the footy, for, that was the first game I called since, so I must have come out on the Tuesday, I went and called the footy on the Friday night. And I felt really weird that day where I was kind of, I felt like everyone was looking at me. And, and it was, I mean, a lot of this is going on in your own head. And there was a number of other commentators come over and from other networks and sort of congratulate me on my piece and I read it and well done and blah, blah, blah. So I was really lucky that the reaction I got from uh, from my colleagues along the way that there wasn't, yeah, I didn't sort of sense too much animosity, but it's a weird feeling in yourself that, yeah, I, you do feel a little bit uncomfortable in the in the environment that you're at in such a confined space. Maybe that's the vibe I'm feeling because mm. we do this podcast every week and we do come at it with a critical and very different eye to what the rest of the footy yeah. media do. And so then I line up with the footy media on a Sunday and yeah. perhaps I feel maybe it's more perceived that I yeah. feel a little exposed and a little nervous when I walk back in and 
certainly this next topic that I'm going to talk about is not going to make that any easier, but I was interested this week. Jimmy Bartell has been announced as an Our Watch ambassador and, of course, Jimmy Bartell has been really overt and really open with um, the experiences that his family had with domestic violence and I think it's such a fantastic thing that he's stepping up to give his voice to Our Watch and we did get a couple of comments during the week about the dissonance between having him and Wayne Carey on the same commentary team and we always do, we always get comments about Wayne Carey and I have wondered for a long time why it is that Wayne Carey really does elicit this response because for the most part the footy media has moved on. You know, it takes four years kind of to cleanse someone of whatever has happened and people have moved on. They, If anything, people talk about the Anthony Stevens affair more than they talk about things that he had to go to court for. But for a lot of our listeners, they feel quite confronted by seeing him continually get these marquee positions, like whether it's speaking on behalf of the AFL or Channel 7 or Triple M. And recently he has been elevated into a few posts that I've seen on the North Melbourne Footy Club website. And I was doing some thinking about it this week because it is a constant for the people who listen to this podcast that that is confronting to them. And I think what it is is that it's because one in three women will face um, violence in this country in their lifetimes. So that's one in three people who are victims, people who are walking around with those scars. And I think that the judicial system in this country demonstrates that perpetrators often get away with it. Look, they may cop a fine, they may serve their time, but it really has no limitation on their career progression. You know, when we see Wayne Carey, for better or for worse, He's been redeemed because he could kick well and because he was awesome on the field. But he hasn't ever really got in front of that story. And it's been interesting to kind of look at that and analyse that because North Melbourne are the most progressive and amazing club. They have been so far ahead of any other club with their gender action plans. And I think there's real opportunity there for North to really lead in a new and amazing way if they were able to harness that and we could hear his side of the story. Because from all reports, that I get. And I've only met Wayne Carey once and he was lovely to me. And from all reports from colleagues, he he does feel really regretful about those things that happened in his past. And it could be an amazing moment for Mm. footy. Do you agree? Well, yeah. And I'm not a fan. I've come to a point where I I'm not a fan of cancel culture no. because I don't think that's not going to I don't think that's going to get us anywhere but I do think we have to have proper discussions about cultural change and how we get there so we need to we need to keep that in our mind when we're and I guess take the personality out of it there's a quote that Natasha Stott Despoir again I will quote her book on violence because I think it's really it's a small little book and it's really really valuable and one of the things she says is we can eliminate violence against women and children but to do so requires a conscious and critical conversation about gender relationships power and what builds and changes culture and so I guess the challenge for media organizations or for football clubs is when you have particular people in roles, what is that saying about your culture? And what is that saying to women, but also what is that saying to men? Yeah, it seems to be a real blind spot in particular. I think, I don't know if it's because of him being a great guy. I would love to see him lead some change and lead the conversation because for a lot of women out there and a lot of people out there, it's just not going to go away. The other place that is amazing to take the temperature on what people think is Twitter, Facebook, social media. And I have noticed that you don't have to wait that long when he's fronting a game to see what people think. And the world is really changing now that women can really exercise their voice and, and you know, men too, 
in the footy space through social media. And I was recently listening to a podcast called Intercept and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, a Democratic Congresswoman, Congresswoman. Congresswoman, sorry, she was talking about how she has used Twitter so much as a tool for understanding her constituents. I've got to grab for you now. That's probably one thing that I that I did not share in this Twitter 101 because maybe that's more of a 201 <laughs> yeah. in that it's not just a, an outlet. It's also an inlet in that it is a place where you can where you take temperature, where you take pulse. And it's not just how to tweet, but it's also how to listen and how to read. And that really tells you where people are at, where the zeitgeist is, so that you can kind of be speaking in a way that is not going against the tide of the language and the mood and the sentiment of where people are. And I think we saw that example when the Taylor Harris photo was deleted. We lost the momentum with that. We lost Mm. what those critical, what the critical mass was kind of saying. And so, and I think that that was really quickly amended and then we got to see what the fallout was and people got to have their voice. So there's a whole, like, Footy clubs are so desperate to engage people across the board. Mm. The members are there telling them what they think. Mm. And the punters are there tweeting throughout matches and games and telling us what they think. You can't just see this as an outlet. And I think commentary is so often just so outward that actually being critical, Mm. taking a moment and, and looking and listening. You know, if you've ever done a privilege walk, you know that the people up the front are only looking at the people ahead of them. They're not looking back at the people behind them. And I think the people behind them are the ones that we really need to look out for. 100%. (laughs) No, it's, yeah, it's, it's probably an area that I haven't, luckily haven't had much exposure to. I think that I'm I'm very lucky in the the home that I came from that I I never witnessed domestic violence. I'd never, I certainly am, probably don't know enough about it to think that when you mention the numbers that sort of one in three, yeah, that's, that's alarming. And I I actually was lucky enough to do some work with Charlie King, who's one of the great men uh, on the planet, who's. Um, our broadcaster up in in Darwin, and, and he does so much work in in remote communities and right throughout the Northern Territory, trying to to spread that message. and uh, And they actually put in a, a bunch of um, domestic violence action plans with their footy codes there. So from football right throughout the the Northern Territory is to unless you follow these certain principles, you won't be playing. And uh, and just to kind of do whatever they can to to try and make things a, a little easier. And to hear some of the stories from him, yeah, that was probably my first. Uh, the first time that I was kind of like, whoa, that, yeah, this is um, this is such a serious thing. And to, to hear the guy, the way that you guys speak about it in particular, obviously come from up with um, a perspective that, that as a man and, and from the home that I come from, yeah, I, I can't really relate or can't, yeah, relate's probably not the right word, but can't, uh, yeah, yeah, don't have the, the same perspective. You say that, Gordon, but actually in writing your article, I feel like that in some part really opens up people's minds to what people bring to work with them. And so I think that what you demonstrate and why it's been so great to have you with us today is that you do have a unique perspective and we may look across and see a handsome, macho white man. <laughs> but, you know, you're, pa- you're packing a punch that you have an experience that you're bringing that is actually really unique to the commentary box. And I think my point is that Jimmy Partell does too now. And so the world is changing and that's a really exciting thing for us all. And just a reminder to all of our listeners, if you need any kind of support with domestic or family violence, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. And at this point, we would also like to send our absolute sincerest condolences to the family and friends of Courtney Heron. We've been thinking of you this week.
So while we've got Corbin in the studio today, I just wanted to run with a little omen watch that I saw about Brownlow. I know middle of the year, time to start thinking about <laughs> Brownlow votes. Yes. Yep. Again, Sir Swamp Thing on Twitter, who is always the font of many, many interesting and bizarre stats, had come out with a tweet about the most Brownlow votes by star sign. I don't know if you saw this. <laughs> Fantastic. And I really liked this. But what was really surprising is that the highest percentage of Brownlow winners have been Pisces. So it's 7,128. And the thing about Pisces is Pisces are really empathetic, compassionate, intuitive people. So the least number of Brownlow votes have been won by Sagittarians. And Sagittarians are independent, strong-willed and often off the beaten track. So I was wondering (laughs) if there was anything in that. And then I thought, I'll have a look and just see if this is going to give us some ideas of who might come away with it this year. You've done a lot of preparation. Okay. So famous Sagittarian, Gary Ablett Jr. Bow, he's out of the race. Yep. He's out of the race now. So, who do you reckon is a Pisces? Patty Cripps. <laughs> what do you that? think? Oh, just no, I don't know Patty's birthday, but I just knew where the conversation <laughs> yeah. was going. He seems deeply intuitive. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that this might be an indicator? Are we on to something? Could be. Absolutely. That's an amazing work. I might even (laughs) slip that one into the commentary. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. Okay, I actually have a mathematical reason why this might be so, and I can't even believe. Do you know what I'm going to say? The birth dates. Yeah, so Malcolm Gladwell did um, a study of birth dates, and you'll know in his book, the name of his book is The Ten Thousand. Outliers. Okay, so in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, he does this thing in one of the chapters where he replaces in the call of a hockey game, an ice hockey game, he replaces the names of the players who are all pro hockey players with their birth dates. And it often falls that it's like March 24 hits the puck, Mm. hits the pucks it, pucks Pucks to to March 17 (laughs) to February 28. And it's the reason Mm. being that if you start school and you're a bit older, you manage to get into better developmental pathways, better coaches, better grounds, you know, and you get elevated more quickly. So you could well, be really onto something. It could be, there. except that Capricorns are middle of the road, and Capricorn Capricorns are January. But they could be December too, couldn't they? Mm, yes, right they can. The but also, we have a different school year, well, so, so the, depends the, the cutoff, the cutoff is different. So but there is, is a, not there is, science I, I have heard that in AFL. Let's do a graph. Yeah. I think we need to we'll investigate this more deeply. Corbin, we'll <laughs> leave that little stat with you to take into yep. the commentary this weekend. Thank you so much for joining us on the Outer Sanctum. Always happy to have a bit of Gladwellian sort of chat right before we end. So. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm Chelsea Randall and you're listening to the Outer Sanctum. The people have spoken and we have listened. They are missing the pithy Felicity race in the Outer Sanctum. And we put this to her and... You'll be unsurprised to know that she still has a lot of observations and she's been good enough to start a new segment for us. We cut the ribbon and take the plastic off a new segment we like to call Googling with Felicity. So for anyone who's ever been to the MCG, you may have noticed the wires strung across the ground at roof height that are supposedly there to deter the birds. Nine parallel wires, about 180 metres long. Somehow they're enough to keep seagulls away and honestly, for the most part, the birds circle above and really don't end up on the field. But how does this wild science slash magic work? 
I've always assumed that the wires hum or have some weird magnetic property that's both scientifically proven and probably more expensive than AFLX. But after some simple Googling, it turns out that these wires were just put up there as the last stitch crack at an ongoing bird problem that just wasn't being solved by any other methods. I found out that during the 2011 to 2012 season, wedge-tailed eagles and their handlers were positioned on the roof of the stadium at opposite ends of the ground, and they were quite successful at scaring away the chip hunters. However, each week, permits were required for both the birds and work cover, given that handlers were being safety harnessed to the roof of a stadium, so a better ongoing solution was required. They then looked at using fake birds of prey tied to long kite strings and they were flying from about six spots around the roof. It had some varying success, but again, they weren't considered to be a permanent solution. So how did this wire strategy come about? It seems as though there is absolutely no science. Just someone one day obviously saw some rolls of wire lying around and thought maybe if they strung that up across the ground, large flocks of birds wouldn't be able to all swarm the ground at once. So there's no humming, there's no magnetic field, there's not even a spidey sense. Bird experts were actually called in to assure the AFL that even if the birds did try to storm the Bastille, a mass decapitation was highly unlikely. But the same experts also predicted that the wires wouldn't work, because apparently seagulls are smart. In the end, plain wires, no science, very few seagulls on the field. I don't know about you, but I like to cheer for the odd one that makes it through. What happens if one day these super smart birds decide to land on the wires and proceed to do what birds do to the people below? I mean, given that we're always being told that being shat on by a bird's lucky, this could be the biggest omen watch of our lifetime. Coming up next, we're going to go around the grounds. Uh, I'm Danny Marshall and I play with the Arizona Ladyhawks in Phoenix, Arizona. My name is Sarah Edwards-Rohner. I'm from Denver, Colorado, and I play for the Denver Lady Bulldogs. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum, girls. You've both come a really long way. Why are you in Australia? Well, we're here to play footy. With the expansion in the AFLW coming up for 2020, there's a lot of slots to fill and um, trying to just take a crack at it and see if we could make it into the league. What is it like, Danny, to travel to the other side of the world to try and have a shot at playing AFLW? Yeah, you never really know what you're getting yourself into when you travel halfway across the world to try something you've only been playing for about a year. But um, everyone at home was kind of like, uh, are you sure? Like, you want to do this? That's a long time to be away. But, you know, I think both of us were like, well, we have to try. Like, to not try, I think we'd always just have that nagging thing in the back of our mind, like, what if? So we figured we might as well give it a shot. How did you both come into contact with Australian Rules Footy? How did you discover it? Uh, Let's see. So I played rugby from the age of 16 until my late 20s. When I was in college, we would watch the Rugby World Cup. Footy would come on before the games on the broadcast. So I knew about it then. My parents actually knew about it back in the 80s when it was played on ESPN. Back in 2004, I I was kind of over rugby (laughs) and I wanted to play footy but there was no women's team and so then I just kept playing rugby and you know played at the national level and finally my friend she just nagged me for about three years we've got a team you've got to come play with us and then I said okay I'll give it a try and that was seven years ago and then I never played rugby since although I tried once and it was really bad (laughs) it was really bad (laughs) I wanted to kick the ball the whole game (laughs) What about you, Denny? Yeah, I found it when ESPN had a short, short stint in 2009 to 2011 where they aired it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. It was like catching and kicking and tackling and 
it was just amazing. It's like the perfect combination of every sport I've ever wanted to play in one sport. So I was like, this is super cool. But I was playing on scholarship at the time, so couldn't risk uh, getting hurt. So kind of pushed that to the back and didn't really live in a city with it for a while. And then finally, the Arizona team revamped their team in like 2017. So 2018, found out about it and, and jumped right in. So what was this? steepest learning curve when it came to learning the game AFL? For me, the steepest learning curve was the handball, because in rugby, it's just a pass. It's just a throw. Tackling is completely different. In rugby, you can hit in the back. You can do whatever you need to do to get the person down, except for go around the above the shoulders. But the tackling concept in um, Australian rules is so much different. It doesn't need to be quite as brutal. And so to be able to break myself from those kind of hits or chasing down a person and hitting them in the back, that was really hard for me. I think the biggest thing for me was like the shepherding aspect of it. So in soccer, like you pass and you immediately give space and you immediately like get as far away as you can basically to create space. But in footy, once you pass, you go to them, you shepherd, you make sure it's good and then you go create space. So to break myself of like leaving the play immediately was like really difficult. So rewiring a big change. But I also with the handballs, I was just like, what? Is this? I don't understand. I think for my first like four games, I didn't even handball ever. I just kicked it. So I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> there are players who built whole careers doing the same thing. So, <laughs> so while you've been here, you've um, been training with the Bulldogs VFLW team and you've been playing with Aberfeldy. What's it been like being around Australian footballers? Yeah, so I've actually bumped around. I uh, was uh, with the Bulldogs for a week and a half, Collingwood week and a half. I'm going up to the Gold Coast next week. To be around that intensity and that level is really refreshing. I've played at this level before, but in a different sport in rugby. But to be able to get the coaching um, and be around the girls who are so knowledgeable about the game is really great. And I wish we had this intensity and this information at home. Yeah. I started my first practice at Aberfeldy, played with them over the weekend. Then when Sarah got here, we started training with the Bulldogs. Um, and I've been there since. Yeah, we don't. Like, my team in America has 12 girls. Like, we don't even have enough for a full team, let alone, like, doing full field drills at practice. We just we just don't have the players. So to come here, be with full teams of women that, like, are passionate about the sport and are excited to go play and just have that level of intensity is fantastic. So we just really appreciate everyone letting us out. And when you play at home, are you playing on ovals? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's, like, one oval in the entire U.S., and it's in Florida where Nationals is going to be this year. So we're really excited. But... I mean, mostly just soccer fields and football fields. And then if we have to play like a full game, we try to find a park that's like two soccer fields next to each other. We kind of like make it a diagonal thing across it. So it's it's difficult to and find. And what do you do for goalposts? Well, we drive rebar into the ground and put PVC pipe over it. Yeah. Um, we've also found telescopic flagpoles for people who go to race car things in the south. They've stake their flag pole outside their camper trailer and fly their flags and so we bought those and they extend taller than the rebar and uh, pvc but it's pretty much a makeshift thing we just love the sport so much that we do what we do to try and make the ground as footy like as possible yeah we have like little those umbrella poles that you like put the bases down and you stick the pole into that's that's what we use. We do the PVC pipe thing too. So Absolutely amazing. The commitment is just um, <laughs> extra, extraordinary. So what does the next little while hold for you here? You're hoping to get picked up, obviously, by one of the 
perhaps one of the expansion teams? When will you find out? Best case scenario is we could get signed while we're here as rookies. Um, The rookie signing period goes up until August. If that doesn't happen, then we nominate for the draft and cross our fingers that we get selected in October. And so you would actually then have to, if that were to happen, and fingers crossed it does, you then move here for a few months. How's that going to work out at home? (laughs) I imagine that (laughs) presents some challenges. Yeah, that's definitely been the biggest discussion with me and my husband. Like, he has a really good job. He really likes what he's doing. So, like, to ask him to be like, hey, can we, you know, go overseas for a while? I mean, it looks like after talking with some of the teams, they'd really basically expect us to be here eight or nine months. So um, my husband and I are talking about if it happens, just moving and and him trying to find, like, a full-time job here while I play. I'm super supportive of that. So that'd be really cool. But to make that decision to move around the world is just a really big decision. So we're just praying through it and hoping, you know, that everything works out if if that does end up being an opportunity we have. Yeah, my husband and I have talked about it and his company has offices around the country here and has been in touch with the people and they have work for him. So if that were the case, we would at least have that first base covered. Sarah, I've seen you talk about AFLW as being a bright spot for women's sport. Generally, what does it mean to to have these options for women to play sport at an elite level? Well, when I was younger, I never, it was never even an option, really. I think they probably had tennis and golf, but for contact sports for women, I think soccer was even in the US, they didn't have the women's national team until the mid 90s. So I was like 10, 9, 10, 11 years old, and I always wanted to be a professional athlete, and people would just laugh at me and tell you it's not not possible. It'll never happen. To see the, the sport grow, yes, it is an Australian-based sport, but to have this option where um, the women get the same facilities and access to the clubs, and they wear the team colors, and they are representation of the clubs here is massive because in the United States, gridiron football is our sport that everybody loves. They made a big deal. They just got like a female sideline coach, you know, for one of the teams. And like nobody would even imagine that uh, the Denver Broncos or the Chicago Bears or Green Bay Packers would have a Green Bay Packers women's team who wears the Packers uniforms, who plays in the Packers stadium, like it just will never happen. And so for Australians to be that far ahead of the game and to embracing women in sport is not just big for Australians or Australian rules football, but it's big for women athletes all over the world. Goosebumps. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel the same way, Denny? Yeah, I mean, I had heard that they started the professional league. Yeah, that just provides so much hope for women in sports. It's like I don't have to stop when I feel like I'm at my peak. I can keep pushing. There's another level that I can go to. I can get better coaching. I can play with better players. And that just opens up a world of opportunity. It's like there's women that want to play. They want to do this and to be able to provide that platform for them to be able to follow their dreams and hopefully for us to show that, you know, it's not too far to follow your dreams, of, you know, even halfway across the world to be able to play in this competition is, is just amazing. We wish you guys so much luck. We really hope to see you running out next year. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> we hope to, too. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, ladies, Corbin has left the building. Yes. He was just a delight and we were so lucky to have him with us today. Any final business, Nicole Hayes? Well, it's great that we just heard from Felicity because I, at this point, I know she'll be listening. You'll need to cover your ears because we've had another 
ticketing crisis. <laughs> and this is a soft spot for our Felicity, um, or a sore spot probably. The FIFA for the Women's World Cup, which starts literally next week, mm. um, it's pending. They've had a bit of an issue with some tickets where they've actually, uh, people who have bought tickets together have been issued ones that are separated out, like a lot of them, thousands. And As in the three of us buy tickets to go to the game, but we're sitting at all different spots Even though the the, it looked like you were all together when mm. you bought them. So you've got one guy's coming over from Bangkok and he'll have to sit 12 rows behind his 11 and 13-year-old daughters for three games. Another fan who bought four tickets in a pre-sale, including for a 13-year-old daughter, has been given four in the same row, weirdly separated by single seats. <laughs> and then... Another person who tweeted very cheerily said, good luck to whoever gets stuck sitting next to my three-year-old. Oh, so no. The, iron, the, the funny that, thing. I'd take that as a win. Yeah, really. No kidding. I think he seems quite <laughs> pleased about it. Um, I think now anyone who's trying to find their tickets, they've just disappeared. So they are attempting to redress this, but, you know, oops. And... <laughs> That we really need to send Felicity over there to sort them out. Her brain would explode. Yep. Like her whole head would explode. Totally. She's going to be Googling this this <laughs> afternoon. There'll be some kind of ticketing segment for next week, no doubt. Okay, do you want me to tell you what caught my eye? Because, oh, my God, could I love this woman more? <laughs> Serena Williams has hit Roland Garros and she was wearing a cape. And in French there was words on the cape that said, Queen, Mother, goddess and champion. Could she just nail it better with an electronic nail gun? No. Like she couldn't. It was perfection. It was of course in absolute response response Mm. or rebuttal to the black to the black cat suit that she wore last year that was actually an assistance suit post pregnancy. Yeah. I love the way she just Mm. just amps it up. She goes, I'm gonna be Serena 2.0. Watch this space. A man I just I just love her so Rock much. Star. She also does like a couture to court kind of thing. She does. Because she has the couture and then she wears it on court and so that fabric goes into her little her outfit that she wears. It just is amazing. It's the reverse of our pre-ski. It's, it's so good. <laughs> it's, it's pre-ski. Pre-tennis. Pre <laughs> there you go. Thank you. I a French accent makes everything better. <laughs> Well, what caught my eye this week was something that I've actually been having some conversations with about people off field. And for many girls who are at the end of their secondary schooling or leaving school, there is often a tendency to drop out of sport. And there's been some research that's said, yes, this is this is actually a phenomenon that nearly 50% of girls are turning away from sport by the age of 17. And the reason I'm bringing it up is not because it's a happy story, but because I think the more that you know, we acknowledge that something's happening and we think about why that's happening and what we can do to remove the barriers, the better. Absolutely. Couldn't agree Mm. with you more. It is so important that women and girls feel encouraged to stay in sport and the barriers can be so many and varied. Mm. You just need to look on the Vic Health website and they Mm. outline what they are. All of us could do better at that too. You know, the blockages that I have to, you're mm. looking at me blankly, Lucy, because you're pretty much an elite athlete. But, um, no, but I mean, I, you could walk your dog in the Olympics. I, Seriously. I actually, my, I experienced this with my daughter because my daughters, because they played in their soccer, a really big soccer club with a lot of uh, girls and women playing. But from under 16s, they have to leap up to women's because there's no under 18s and there's not the resources yeah. put in there to recruit. And so they lose players largely because 15-year-old girls do not want to be playing with adult women who are in their 20s and even 30s. Also towards the end of schooling when, you know, you get to those last two years and you do feel the pressure, it's often girls that are succumbing and saying, I'm going to stop all the other activities and just focus on, on my academic stuff. Yep. And I know that was my story that mm. I went, I don't have time for this, but then 
what happened was it wasn't great for my mental health and my anxiety. And that's then been, a, you know, something that I've had to mm. kind of work away back to mm. as an adult. It's why those things like rock up netball and cardio tennis mm. are so awesome because they keep you invested in a sport, yep. but you can drop in and drop out, you know. If anyone can let me know where I can rock up to play netball, I'm dying to find out. Tweet us, please. Okay. Thanks for that. We will. Should Someone be an awesome centre. Oh, my gosh. So fierce. So fierce. Wing attack, actually. Okay. I think we're done. There's only one thing left to say. There's only three of us. Are we ready? Hang on a minute. Can I just say a few people have tweeted us and said that they have been saying it along with us. Ah. So there's only three of us. So can you populate it today, people? Wind down your windows. Tess, can you do it with us too? Okay, we ready? Everyone wind down your windows. (laughs) You're on the train. You've got your earbuds in. You're walking your dog. Are you ready to say it? Everyone knows how it goes. Ready, set, go. One, two, three. Go footy! (laughs) Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 